Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I am your host, Michael Bakker. This season, we're talking about shifting diets. And today's guest believes shifting school meals can be a cornerstone on the quest for lifelong nutrition, health, and well being. Chef Ann Cooper is a celebrated author, educator, and advocate for better food for all children. In a nation where diet related illness have cast a shadow over our children's future, Anne is a relentless voice of reform. This renegade lunch lady is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America and has been a chef for more than 30 years. In 2009, she founded the Chef Anne Foundation, which is dedicated to helping schools take action so that every child has daily access to fresh, healthy food. She envisions a world where chefs like her are no longer considered renegades. Welcome to the show, Chef Anne. So happy to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I love to see you, Michael. To get things started, would you mind taking us back to, I think it's 2009, and share with us a little bit about the pivotal moment when you began the Chef Anne Foundation. What sparked the idea? Yeah, you know, I'm such an unlikely candidate to be a school food advocate. I started as a white tablecloth chef. I cooked around the world and all kinds of places. And I got into school food in 1999. I started in a private school. And then Alice Waters kind of dragged me by the scruff of my neck out to Berkeley. By the time I got to Berkeley, uh, I was doing a lot of stuff that was starting to get noticed in the school food world. And people were coming and asking us, well, how can we do that? And how can we do what you do? And I, I moved on from Berkeley uh, to New York. And then people really started to come and see. And so I had this idea that I needed to build a lunchbox. And I really thought it was going to be a box, right? You know, I thought, oh, I'll build a box and put recipe cards in it. And then I thought I needed to build something digitally. And when I had this idea, it came to me that we needed a digital platform. And to Google people, I'm sure that makes a lot of sense. But I decided we needed to build a digital platform to be able to share all the school food knowledge that we had gained and New York and in Berkeley and then on as we get into Boulder. And that was sort of the birth idea of, of the Chef Anne Foundation. You make it sound so easy, but what was the driving force in you to really to say, I'm going to want to share all of this insight with the broader world? Why didn't you say, you know, I've got all of this stuff, make it available. But what was driving you personally, Chef Anne? Well, you know, I had spent decades cooking fancy food for rich people. I mean, that's what we did, you know? And I swept all over the country doing schlep and cook events. That's what we called them because everyone wanted the chefs to be out there helping them fundraise for stuff. But when I got into school food, I realized I could make a difference. I'd worked on cruise ships. I'd catered for 20,000 people backstage for the Grateful Dead. But I could take all that knowledge from doing all of those things and really do something important. And that was take care of kids and take care of the planet and kind of change the world. I had this idea that it was possible to change the world. I am so glad you had that belief and you subsequently did what you did. 
so you duck specifically into the kids' meals and in school meals. Do you have additional thoughts on how others or other influences can play a role in shaping children's diets these days as well? Well, I mean, we all can certainly. And I heard your podcast with Stephen a, a month ago, and he's amazing, of course. I mean, parents can make a difference and educators can make a difference and farmers can make a difference. I mean, we all can really make a difference in, in how kids eat. And the biggest difference, I mean, maybe what we could do is change advertising, of course. I mean, our kids see 10,000 advertisements a year for non-nutrient foods. I mean, how can I get them to eat broccoli? So there's a lot we can do to make a difference. Yeah. So I want to dig a little deeper into what you have done in the world of school foods. So maybe let's start with, I think you have a nickname out there. So I've heard that some would call you the renegade lunch lady. Talk to me a little bit about how you've earned that nickname. It might have been when the, I was quoted as saying I wanted to blow up the USDA. And that kept me out of the White House for many years and on a lot of people's bad list. But when I first dropped out of that kind of white table celebrity chef world, and I announced in a New York Times interview that, you know, I was a lunch lady now, somebody quipped, oh, yeah, well, if you're a lunch lady, you're going to be the renegade lunch lady. And it kind of stuck. But it was this idea that I didn't really know about school food, but I knew about real food. I knew about chef food, but I knew about healthy food. I knew about farmers, working with farmers, the importance of agriculture, the importance of soil. I knew those things. And that's what I took into school food, not the compliance end. I didn't really know the compliance end, not like the nuts and bolts of it. I didn't really know, but I knew that we needed to feed kids better. I knew we had to take care of the farmers. And that's what I brought to it. And that kind of became the renegade part of it. But I will say, and I'm proud of this, I'm not so renegade anymore. Now my foundation's working with the USDA. Now, uh, you know, I've been working with, you know, the Obama administration and, you know, was at the White House recently and or at the conference last year. And so, you know, I'm not a renegade anymore, which I'm proud of because I think I've helped my foundation, the team we, I work with has helped make what we believe in much more mainstream. Yeah. But if I hear you well, when you started, you basically started to fight a system. And maybe in the beginning, you were allowed about it and you were trying to shake up the system. So my first question is, what did you learn in the beginning about systems change from what worked, what didn't work? Well, it certainly got noticed when I said I wanted to blow up the USDA and I wanted to take school food out from under the USDA and put it under healthy human services. So I certainly got a lot of notice, um, good or bad. But I think what I've come to learn, and this is really in the last seven or eight years, and part of it has been working with the CEO of my foundation, Mara Fleischmann is that it's really important to collaborate. In the beginning, I just kind of thought, I know what's right. This is what I want to do. I'm going to push, I'm going to push, and I'm going to push and yell and scream and jump up and down and people will listen. And I think maybe, you know, 25 years ago, there was a place for that. But I've come to learn that system change has to be really inclusive. It has to be collaborative. Um, doesn't mean I can't jump up and down and yell and scream, but 
I have to listen as much as I yell and I have to bring everyone to the table. And when you do that, it's maybe slower, but I think then this change becomes more sustainable and more people come under the umbrella. I think it's so interesting what you're sharing over here, because I think lots of people who come to a new ecosystem believe that they can change the system by being disruptive. But what I hear actually you say is that, yeah, you can be disruptive up front, but it doesn't necessarily lead to sustainable change. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And, you know, if I was still saying today some of the things I said many years ago, um, the USDA wouldn't be funding and in partnership with my foundation, right? You know, so you have to come there and figure out how you can work with people so that your message can get out there in the world. And listen, mine's not the only foundation out there doing this work. We need every single foundation and the government and everybody who cares about the food system and our kids to help make these changes. So yeah, I've had to tone it down a notch. So then a, a provocative follow-up question for you, Chef. And how would you respond if a cynical critic would tell you, but you've now become part of the system? I would say they're probably right. I have become part of the system, but I'm pushing from the inside instead of taking a hammer to the outside. And I think that there's a place for the hammer on the outside, but I think once the outside starts to change and, and people are listening to you a little, you got to put that hammer back in the toolbox and then maybe come in the inside and, and, and work from the inside out. And it might be slower than I would like, and it might be a lot more political than I would like, but yeah, I am part of the system now, and I'm, I'm proud of that because I think that will help us move forward. Five years ago, I didn't know if my foundation would make it to 10 years old. Now it will outlive me, and I, I feel really good about that. Yeah, I think that's an amazing, a truly an amazing accomplishment. So when you look at the system as of today, and I think over 30 million school lunches are still being served every day, where do you see the opportunities today. So if the next renegade lunch lady would ultimately pop up, where do you think she would start this time around? Well, you know, there's approximately 100,000 schools and they range from all chicken nugget-ish food to some all scratch food. There's a lot of room and a lot of diversity in there. So even some of the most basic things we've been trying to do get better food in schools, move away from highly processed foods, trying to get sugar requirements. You know, there's no compliance around sugar, so you can feed kids as much sugar as you want. I mean, there's a calorie requirement, but no sugar. So I think that the next generation coming up behind me, which the foundation is working on with a fellowship program we have, can work with trying to get more scratch food in, trying to get more local procurement happening, trying to get more highly educated people working in the system. One of the programs that the foundation is working on now is called Healthy School Food Pathways, which were, have pre-apprentices, apprentices, and fellowships because most school food service is really understaffed, underemployed, and we need trained people to take those jobs. We need to make sure that there is a next generation coming up. So whether it's in better food, whether it's in more money for the food, whether it's in healthy school meals for all, 
whether it's for training, there's all kinds of places to start on this work. Yeah. So what I hear you say, there are many, many opportunities still left to be addressed. And what I've heard you say loud and clear as well is that you are truly focused on shifting what is being served in schools. You, I think, are a true believer in cooking from scratch. Yes. So, but you know as well, the, the ecosystem or so many schools either don't have the equipment on site, don't have the staffing. So how do you and the foundation determine whether it should be focused first and foremost on the schools that can cook from scratch or making an impact in the schools that don't have on-site equipment, but they might still improve what they offer as well? Where do you focus on and how do you come to that decision? We have within the Chef Anne Foundation places for people who are fully processed and highly scratch cooked. So it depends on which program we work with them on. Like the Lunchbox, which is a free online tool, everything on it's free, hundreds and hundreds of recipes. Anyone can start there. People can take classes through the School Food Institute. But we have other programs like Get Schools Cooking and Healthy Meals Incentives and some of the others where people apply. So what we try and do is figure out where they are in the continuum by asking them to take a self-assessment. It's called the scale tool. And this self-assessment will help them and us figure out where they are. And then we can help them decide where they can start with this work. And in some cases, they can apply for us for grants. Um, get schools cooking grants and other grants. So we have to figure out where they are and help them from where they're starting. And then building upon that, who are in general your first group that you engage with within a school system to affect change? Are there clear, it's always the parents or it's always the food professionals, is it the board? Where does change normally start? You know, it's always different. That's really interesting. You know, it was the parent group who brought me into Berkeley and a parent group who brought me into Boulder. But those were early on projects. In today's world, it's usually the school food professional or the administrators. Sometimes parents get in touch with us, but most often parents are pushing the administrators and the school food professionals to make change. And they they find us where you know, we're out there enough. We're working in every single state. We're in 14,000 schools touching 4 million kids. So we've got a lot of notoriety at this point. So it really, really depends. But I would say for the most part, it's the school food professionals or the administrators. Yeah. They find you, they get going, and then they need probably more funding, different funding, more equipment. Can you talk a little bit more about from what your organization does to help a school system when they've reached that moment? Well, when they've reached that moment, it depends, it depends what they need. So we look at five areas, food, finance, facilities, human resources, and marketing. Food, how do you get it and make sure it's good? Finances, how do you pay for it? School food reimbursement is about $4.25, not very much. Facilities, do they have stoves? Do they have ovens? Human resources, do they have staff and are they trained? And finally, marketing, because the best food in the world is, is compost if nobody eats it. And that's compost at best. Mostly it's trash. 
So it depends what they need. If they already have trained staff and their kids are eating, but they need equipment, we can help them ascertain what kind of equipment they need and maybe some grants to get it. If they're really at the beginning of the transition and they need help on the whole transition, then we might have them apply for a Get Schools cooking grant. If what they really need is education for their staff, maybe we could say, well, why don't you look at the School Food Institute and and get your staff to take a lot of the courses that are there? If they're really looking for big system change, we have a new granting program called the PLANTS Grant. Uh, We'll be working with uh, USDA to give out six or eight dollars $600,000 grants this year that are having collaboration between school districts, community groups, and farm-based groups to try and change their whole ecosystem to change what the kids are eating. So it really depends where they are in the continuum and what it is they need once we figure that out. Yeah. I think people are probably surprised by the various rules and regulations that impact school food. So... If we can maybe dig a little deeper into that. So from an ingredient perspective, can a typical school food system buy food from anybody or are they by law required to buy from specific providers? Are there specific rules in place that determine what you can or cannot buy? Yes. So there's a couple of different questions within that question. By law, you can buy from anyone you want. However... Not everyone's going to sell to you because a lot of companies have very large minimums. A lot of companies, the big companies, don't go to every small little town and and county around the United States. So you can become limited that way. What you can buy, yes, um, there are definitely specific laws around what you can buy as far as you have to buy U.S. product whenever possible. Uh, There are ingredients that aren't allowed in school food. Everyone gets a certain amount of money every year in USDA foods, which is commodity foods that the USDA provides. You don't have to take them, but almost everybody does. And your menu has to be compliant. So there are five things that have to be offered at every meal, protein, whole grain, fruit, vegetable, and milk. And that's cow's milk. (laughs) has to be offered at every single meal. And of those five, three have to be served. One of of those three have to be a half a cup of fruit or veg. So with that in mind, then there are guidelines around meat, meat alternatives, how much of that you have and how much whole grain you have. The whole grain, I mean, this is really complicated. You know, the whole grain has to be what's considered whole grain rich, which is 50% whole grain. So even whole grain doesn't have to be whole grain. But it's complicated because they're trying to get better food and less highly processed food. But on the other hand, you can serve kids as much sugar as you want. There's no limits on sugar. And a typical breakfast in a school could be as much as 40, 50 grams of sugar at breakfast. So we can do better. Yeah, it is extraordinarily complex. The other one that you probably have heard way too many times, that you can be forced quote unquote, to serve kids, whatever is specified by the law. But if kids don't want to eat it, they're not going to eat it. And that therefore, why would you serve X, Y, and Z? With your experience, do you think that is actually true? Or would you say, I can get kids to eat really yummy food if I get the opportunity? Yeah, I think 
first of all, adults are mostly the problem, not kids, because adults have these set beliefs that kids don't necessarily have. Doesn't mean there aren't picky eaters or kids who say no, but they're saying no to their parents. No is the first word most kids learn to say. And why do they say no? You're sticking something in their mouth and they say no and you stop doing it. So they think they won, you know, they love that word, no. But I think that it's about education. So when we put, started putting salad bars in schools with Michelle Obama's Let's Move, everyone said kids aren't going to eat off of salad bars. And we said, yes, they will. And you have to work with them. You have to educate them. Research says it takes seven to 12 times to get a child to try and accept a new food. So you have to do education and it can be hands-on education. So it's tastings, it's Iron Chef competitions, it's chef demos, it's farmer visits. You know, you, you need to work with kids. And if they grow things in gardens or cook things in cooking classes, then they have ownership. So you're not going to get every kid to eat everything. But if you want to change how kids eat, if you want to change, you know, the food system, you need to educate. Education is just a big piece of it. Yeah. If you had your magic wand and you could change one or two things in the ecosystem that you work in, what would you change? Okay. Well, if I can be Tinkerbell for a minute, I would take my Tinkerbell wand and say the USDA should say healthy school meals for all. Every single kid in every single school should get every single meal free. That would change the world. It was that way during COVID, but then now it's up to individual states. I think 10 states have made that change now, but that would, that would be huge. And then to go with it, I would say we need a higher reimbursement rate. When you talk about $4.25, you can't get coffee at Starbucks for that. So why we think we should feed a kid for less than a cup of coffee is mind-boggling. And that $4.25 is for payroll and uniforms and trucks and food and plates and everything, and utility. I mean, it's everything. So we need to feed every single kid and we need more money to do it. And those are the two things I would change. Heard loud and clear. Back to you as a change maker, Chef Anne. If you knew then what you know now, what would you do differently? Or what would you tell the next generation of change makers? What to do, and maybe just as importantly, what not to do? I think I would say, which I've already said, is find ways to be more collaborative. Find good partners from the beginning. Don't try and go it alone. Find good partners. Find ways to include policy change from the beginning. Because it wasn't for years that I started, we started working on policy. And really, Mara, the CEO of the Chef Anne Foundation, really moved us in the policy vein. So we can't change it all from the ground up. We have to include policymakers. And so I would tell people that that really makes a difference. And chefs and food people and activists can really, really make a difference with policy. So I would have started policy way earlier on. But isn't the challenge with policy that is even harder to make progress on? So how do you unbalance ultimately your drive to change the system or to make impact and just the time it's going to take to change a little bit in either one town, one state at the time? 
Well, you have to do both at once. I mean, we have to work with individual schools and individual directors and individual pre-apprentices and apprentices, and we have to be working with governors and we have to be working with the USDA and the White House. So you have to do everything all at once. And that is not easy. And that's why you need partners. And that's why you need to collaborate. And that's why we need to work together because you can't do every single little thing. I mean, we're really focused on scratch cooking and procurement and farmers, but a lot of people are doing the garden work or other kinds of work. And so we need to work together and you need to be forceful and patient at the same time. And I was born with very little patience, so it's hard for me, but uh, I'm, I'm learning and you have to be able to you know, touch as many people in as many places at the same time as you possibly can. Yeah. The other one that I've learned or heard over the years is that change making is like a discipline in itself. So separate from what change you want to make, but just the process of change making. And many individuals like you get started. I think you learn the hard way. Any thoughts on what you would tell a starter today of where they might learn more about the process of change making, separate from the thing they want to change? I, I think I would say find someone who you really respect and respect their work and try and get some mentorship. I had that. I had some in the beginning with Alice Waters out in California uh, and her then ED, Karina Wong. But I think you really need some people to help you understand what leadership and change making is. And I didn't really understand leadership. I, I thought it was dictatorship. Sometimes I still think of it as dictatorship. You know, I often have called myself a benevolent dictator that's not very benevolent. But I've learned that, you know, there's something beyond that. And that's really leadership. And I, th I think as you start to become a leader, you also can start to understand change making. And I think, you know, when I, I started as a chef, you know, it was 50 years ago now, you know, so the world was a different place and the worth ethic was different and what people were willing to do and the idea about work-life balance and the idea of, you know, being really passionate about your work, I think, especially working with a lot of um, younger people today. They, they care a lot about work, not how much they work, but the thing that they're doing. And so I think that learning how to lead and learning how to listen and being able to take both listening and learning and leadership and and go forward with that. It's I you know it's been a lot of hard lessons for me going from a benevolent dictator to a leader to hopefully a change maker. Yeah. And what you haven't spoken about yet is the birth and then the growth of your own foundation. Because in addition to affecting change in school food systems, you've ultimately grown your own organization as well. So I'm just curious from learning a little bit more about that journey and what you've learned ultimately creating your own foundation. And it's now a standalone organization that's doing well, the funding and all the challenges you've had with that. You know, I didn't start out to start a foundation and I wasn't rich. I wasn't like, oh, I have all this money, you know, I'm going to start a foundation because I don't know what to do with it. I, I was, a, you know, a chef. I didn't make a lot of money. That was before chefs made a lot of money. I didn't make a lot of money. 
But I had this idea and I wanted to be able to give all the ideas away. And so I thought, okay, I need a nonprofit so I can get grants. And so I, I talked someone into helping me file paperwork to be a 501c3. And I put $10,000 of my own money in the bank. <laughs> and then a friend of mine and, and myself started it. It was just the two of us. And when I got to Boulder, we kind of had a back room. We, we took over a storeroom and, and, you know, then we had one other person. So, you know, in 2012, just 10 years ago, there were like three of us. And now there's over 50 employees of the Chef Ann Foundation. We went from being a very, very small organization with a budget of, you know, six figures to, you know, an organization with a budget of eight figures. And, you know, things have, have really changed. And that's been difficult. And there's been a tremendous amount of growth in the last 18 months, especially in the last year. And that's been difficult. Even hiring, we've hired 31 employees in one year for a company the size of, you know, our foundation that had nine employees, you know, to go to over 40 and then over 50. Just figuring out how to do it, learning how to manage it, learning to build a structure around it, getting a hiring in place. You know, we didn't even have a manual, you know, I mean, all of those things had to come. So it's hard. It's still hard, you know, as we keep growing and everyone works all over the, the country now. So there's no kind of home office. So learning to work virtual Learning how to do all this is, has been tough. It continues to be tough, but we're, we're doing it. And um, most days it works pretty well. Yeah. What I love about your story, Chef Anne, is actually it's not just affecting chains in, in this case, school lunches, but ultimately changing your own organization as well. And you're doing that concurrently. So what are you the most proud of if when you look back on your time creating and now leading the Chef Anne Foundation? The thing I'm most proud of is that our ideas about healthy school food for every kid and scratch cooking with a priority on local procurement are not renegade anymore. We've become mainstream. It might be a little edgy on the mainstream, but now, you know, people talk about this as if, yeah, this is what should be happening. This is what's going on. Yeah, of course we should feed kids better food. Yes, we should buy from local farmers. Yes, we should cook the food. And that's a huge change. When we first started, when I first started in school food, no one talked about school food. They didn't even talk about it. Never mind there was going to be scratch. Nobody knew what their kids ate. Nobody knew what happened in schools and in the kitchens. And so that's what I'm most proud of is that our ideas are affecting the mainstream. And eventually that will make sure that every kid gets better food. That is just awesome. Chef M, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure to hear about your incredible work in the foundation and your overall story. So thank you so much. Thank you. Reflecting on today's interview, here are my three top takeaways for change makers. To start with, though your mission may be constant, your role as change maker may change. Chef Anne was known as the renegade lunch lady, but now she describes herself as a non-renegade lunch lady. And she's proud of that. So interesting. As an unlikely change maker, she started by hammering from the outside. 
And once the outside changed, she put the hammer back in the toolbox and chose a different tool to continue. She started pushing from the inside and she continues to do that so today. Second, consider that change happens on a continuum and it can be sparked at many different points in the system. Chef Anne noted parents, school food professionals, and administrators can all be catalysts for our programming. She also noted different schools are at different stages of their change journeys. Some are starting from a fully heat and serve operation and need support on a full transition. Others might only need better marketing. Her programs are built to reach each of those instigators and scale up or down based on where they're at on the continuum and collaborate. You may and can enter an ecosystem of belief you know the right things to do. You may fancy yourself a disruptor. You might push and pull with little willingness to compromise. But, as Chef Anne noted, systems change has to be inclusive and collaborative. Listen as much as you will yell. Bring everyone to the table. The pace of change might be slower, but the change itself will be more sustainable. For more information about the Chef N Foundation, including the programs and resources mentioned on today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlabtalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. See you next time.